The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom, now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 10 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. It's a milestone, folks. Ten whole episodes of comic book geekery from the 90s, and we are just getting started. We sincerely thank the legion of Wizards listeners who go the extra mile to tell us how much they enjoy the show. It really does matter, you guys. Thanks so much. And also a special thanks to our great guests who have added their comic book collecting memories to the mythos of this podcast. If you don't know by now, let us tell you who we are. Currently drawing back my bow with an arrow aimed squarely at a whole stack of young blood comics. Comics. I'm Adam. And trying to figure out which pouch has my cybernetic eyeball cleaning kit in it. I'm Michael. Yes, issue 10 is not just a momentous occasion for our podcast, but for the magazine to which we pay tribute. You may recall that in episode 9 we read a quote stating that the publishers and staff of Wizard thought this would likely be the last issue of their fledgling comics price guide due to poor sales on past issues. But it turns out Garib Seamus had one more trick in the back pocket of his butt-near-fly Levi jeans. Yes, Rob Liefeld arrived to save the day and here's what wizard historian pat mccallum recalls this issue was the most important issue we ever produced and also the most difficult it started with rob liefeld handing in a cover that was originally planned for somewhere between issues number five to number nine the cover was supposed to be of Sabretooth, but rob as x-force artist wanted to do a cable cover and later as young blood artist a shaft cover so we asked for two covers rob economized the whole thing and sent us one cover with both cable and shaft that caused us a bit of concern it being a cross company cover and all but we went with it then we laid it into the cover format and the was the wrong size the characters obscured the cover logo and issue number we toyed with squeezing the art but rob asked that we not alter it so we didn't as the book was being printed we got a call from marvel who caught wind of the cross company quote team up they let us know just how unhappy they were about it we apologized but they were still pretty miffed they let us run the cover after we explained it was sort of printed already but we had to change the poster insert the cover image minus the logo and ran with a god-awful spider-man poster that marvel supplied us oh and we were instructed to never show that artwork again which is why you haven't seen it and never will again. As daunting as the cover problem was, we went ahead with increasing our page count from 160 to 200, an experiment with polybagging the issue with a freebie floating around the bag, a Youngblood card by Rob Liefeld. The free card was a huge success for us, as fans and retailers really began to take notice of us, our sales saw a significant jump because of the card, and we began to increase with every subsequent issue because we continued producing cards with image-based characters on them. The industry began to take notice of that new comic magazine. So it all came down to a young blood trading card saved wizard magazine. It's pretty crazy, though, if you think about that. Like, you know, I was looking at this cover, and... 
I was really impressed that they were even able to do this with having two different franchises and two different companies on the covers. Not quite authorized, but I think that's kind of how Rob always operated, right? Ask for forgiveness instead of ask for permission. I just want to do it. It's cool. Exactly. Like he's married. You never know. (laughs) (laughs) But issue 10 also contained an infamous bit of correspondence from the fans. So let's open up Willie Lumpkin's mailbag. I recall back in issue eight, a reader wrote asking who is the stronger Marvel team, the X-Men or the Avengers? And Wizards sided with Captain America's crew. Well, now we have a response to that letter, which leads to a controversy. Tommy Vu from Sacramento, California writes, Dear Wizard, I would first like to present to you a complaint. On one of the letters you answered on the Wizard Press in issue 8, you said that the Avengers would be able to beat the X-Men in a battle. I really like the Avengers, but how in the world can you say that? I mean, Archangel's wings could slice and dice Wonder Man into shreds, and Colossus could squash Iron Man into a metallic pizza. Now for a simple question, will Jim Lee or Todd McFarlane be interviewed in future issues of Wizard? And can I have some information on the two new titles from Malibu Comics called Spawn by McFarlane and Wildcats by Jim Lee? Thanks, Tommy Vu, Sacramento, California. To which Wizard responds, What? Metallic pizza? Look, Tommy, Iron Man could kill the X-Men with his fusion reactor-powered pulse beams one by one from orbit if he wanted to. Could anybody stop him? Could Wolverine's claws reach into outer space? No. And even if they fought face to face, there'd be a little splat of Russian organic metal where Colossus used to be. So don't go bad-mouthing Iron Man, the coolest superhero this side of a naked She-Hulk. You could read the Avengers vs. the X-Men article on page 56 for more info. Jeez, I'm so miffed that I won't even tell you that we've got a special McFarland spawn issue next month and a Jim Lee issue coming up in two or three months so there <laughs> wow very snarky of you wizard it really was and so this is something where that little bit of attitude that they were slinging back at their readers actually ended up snowballing into something even bigger. Pat McCallum says, and finally, one of the hottest debates to race through our pages ignited when Doug Goldstein, former Magic Words columnist, stated that Iron Man could kick the X-Men's butts. An incredible avalanche of mail ensued from enraged X-Fans across the country, all describing in dazzling detail how the X-Men could squash Iron Man. We still get mail on it and that was being reported in issue 50 wow yeah this is like gasoline on the fire so as was mentioned wizard actually created an entire article called king of the hill in this issue which listed all the members of each team one on each page so one for the avengers one for the x-men all their different abilities and then rated them with power levels it is so funny if you look really closely though hilarious Wizard lists the Avengers as an A-level power rating, while the X-Men are listed as an A-. Just to make their point. That is pretty funny. Back in that time, Iron Man was by far not the most popular Marvel character. 
like he is today, thanks to Robert Downey Jr. Wizard is probably wrong. Professor X alone could probably mind control Tony Stark, even if he's in space, just to like get him to do what he wants him to do. I kind of question their judgment on saying that that, that Iron Man alone could beat all of the X-Men. I don't buy that. Well, now that we can look forward to more of those letters to come, we're going to check in with our table of contents to kind of go through this issue, see what else is available for reading. And as we mentioned, Rob Liefeld supplied the cover, and that means he is getting a huge interview. And basically what the interviewer is doing is addressing all the controversy around life all the different things he's done wrong and you kind of feel like (laughs) (laughs) well not even his art style just the things in the business that he was uh, creating a problem with like for example we talked about this a while back that Liefeld tried to launch his own book separate from Marvel called Executioners and that was something where they called him up they were pretty upset about it and so what Rob says here is he's like look when I'm not hot any longer which should be any day now do I believe that yes I do do. Comic fans are fickle. I think there's certain things creators do that put them out of favor, like not appear on a monthly basis because this is a what have you done for me lately kind of business, to quote Eddie Murphy, I guess. Out of sight, out of mind. So when a creator drops out of sight, the readers move on to someone else. Anyway, when I've had my 15 minutes of fame, I'm going to need to still make a living. I'm going to still need to look out for my family. I'll still have bills to pay. So I wanted to create a property that I would own and make the property important. If I owned cable, we wouldn't be having this discussion. I'm a young guy. I just turned 24. Sometimes I realize my biggest peak has been in my 23rd year. You have to look out for yourself. If anything, I'm just an enthusiastic creator who wants to get as much done as possible in the time allotted. I realize that when the hot period ends, it might actually get more comfortable, because then people can judge me on the quality of the work and not on how much money they can make reselling my work. Wow. That's a very interesting perspective Rob has, right? Because it is logical and he is being pretty mature about it he's like look you know i wasn't trying to get marvel mad at me i just realized that hey this is possibly a flash in the pan for me and you know he was able to make it last a little bit longer he ended up being right i mean he has been coasting on this era of his life since then that's true and it's also a little unfortunate for the comic book writers and artists that they have no intellectual property rights towards the characters they create and get any kind of royalty from that it's it's kind of a shame i mean going back to the beginning right like yeah. you know, even stan and jack i mean stan had his place as the editor but he didn't own the rights to spider-man even though yeah. he created spider-man it's not something that developed in these later days it's just the image guys ended up drawing much more attention to it so one more thing i was going to bring up here that he mentions is uh just just to kind of bring his point home is they quoted another interview he had done that said Liefeld feels that the independent market is a way for him to test whether or not it's his talent or the marvel masthead that's selling his comics when i go to the independents i want to do the same kind of book as i do for marvel fans won't be disappointed and then wizard asks isn't it possible that by taking that attitude you're limiting yourself saying i'm going to do super superheroes because superheroes sell and rob says he's like first of all let's establish that you don't know me at all wizard's like oh i'll grant you that but that life just interrupts so how would you know that all i ever wanted to do 
is superhero books. That's what I enjoy. It's what I enjoy growing up. It's what I enjoy now in other media. Take into consideration that I'm only 24 years old. Let's say I hang around in this industry for 20 years, which is very possible. I'll grow with my work. And when the time comes I want to do a serious subject, I'll do it. And then Z says, if you're looking for a highly intellectual, thought-provoking, stimulating material, I'm probably the wrong guy to go to. The worst thing I could do is draw an adaptation of Romeo and Juliet. It would put me to sleep. It wouldn't be my best work. If I was saying that Youngblood is intellectual fare, then I could see the disappointment. But that's not what I'm doing. At least he's honest with who he is, and he's not say, oh yeah, I'm the Steven Spielberg of comics or whatever. Yeah. He's, he's like, listen, I, I know my role. I know, I know who I am. I know what I can do and what I can't do. I, I, I kind of respect that about him. Okay. Yeah, definitely. It seems to me like, if nothing else, yes, they were riding a huge wave of excitement over their work, but everybody from, you know, McFarland to Liefeld, Mark Silvestri, all those guys, they were just saying, look, this is our opportunity and we're going to take it and we are so lucky and it's working right now. And so I, I never felt like they were too full of themselves. It's like, yes, I think they got a lot of money and so they could do a lot of stuff with that money. Money, but I never felt like they were a bunch of people who said, yeah, we're changing the comics industry with content. They were always about, we're changing the comics industry from a business perspective. We're trying to draw attention to what's wrong with the business and give creators more rights. And I think they did accomplish that ultimately. I think so. I agree. One thing I had to jump in here and tell you guys about, though, is so I had a chance when I was probably, what, 13 years old, I'd say, to visit Rob Liefeld's offices, the Extreme Studios offices in Anaheim, California. And it was interesting. I had a friend's dad, and his name was Hal, not Hal Jordan, <laughs> but still a cool guy. And he was super into comics, and he was very entrepreneurial. He was always looking for that next thing. And so he was a great artist, and he created a comic, this character called the Tsunami Kid. And he basically, the Tsunami Kid was a surfer, but he could control the waves. Anyway, so... He said, I'm going to go to the Extreme Studios offices just so I can get my foot in the door, but I'm going to do it under the guise of bringing you kids with me. <laughs> and so he set it up as a Boy Scout troop. Basically, he's like, yeah, uh, I want to bring a group of Boy Scouts to see what you guys do over there. So we got to go, and it was just like weekday afternoon. We walked in. And we were expecting, like, the Marvel bullpen as it seemed in the pages, right? We thought, there's going to be artists everywhere drawing, there's going to be rock music playing, you know, people are going to be partying and all that. And we walked in, and it was just dead silence. There was nobody in this office. There was a stack of comics on their waiting room table. It was called Darker Image. And so they walked us around, and it was just kind of like, well, this is where if somebody was here, they'd be doing the digital coloring on the comics with this computer. And it was so underwhelming with a name like Extreme Studios that there was literally a receptionist and like probably one other person there, and it definitely wasn't Rob Liefeld. It's one of those meet your heroes moments. <laughs> yeah. kind of so you said you were about 13. So back in 95, as a 13-year-old, this would be awesome, right? Oh, my God, we're going to go to a comic book studio where they design the comics with a, you know, with a bunch of our friends and, and our Cub Scout leader or whatever. Now looking at it from 2020 eyes, you're like, a middle-aged man took a bunch of 13-year-old boys on a field trip. And you're just like, okay, where are we going here? He's trying to sell his comic? Okay, this is worrisome. Okay, call your parents, kids. I mean, he always had some business going, so I was like, go for 
for it, Hal. You're the coolest guy. You want to do a comic? I mean, everybody, even your friend's dad, was trying to get into the comic book business in the mid-90s. <laughs> it was a viable business option. So next up, speaking of Youngblood and Extreme and all of that, there's a quick article with Hank Canals. The, actually, the title of the article is, My Official Title is Scripter. So his work on Youngblood was writing the word balloon dialogue, right? And he basically explains that he and Rob had been working on Youngblood since 1986. So that is why Rob brought him in when they finally were able to get it produced and out there. And so Rob had brought him on to script it. And uh, when we reviewed Youngblood a few episodes back, you might recall that eventually Hank Canals was fired because Rob Liefeld blamed all the criticisms. Said like, yeah, it was Hank Canals' fault. He wrote terrible dialogue. Yeah, it was the script that was a problem with that book. Yeah, I I don't know about that, Rob. And then he eventually reproduced the comic with new dialogue get a new scripter on it so anyway i just thought it was funny that any drop of excitement they could squeeze out of young blood it is like yeah let's get the scripter in there but he did mention he had done some like backup stories and things for dc comics so hank canals he was legitimate But more legitimate is Mark Bagley, who is being interviewed in an article called Of Webs and Warriors. Bagley first got mainstream recognition for Marvel working on New Warriors, and they're announcing here that he's leaving that with issue number 25, and he explains that the reason is he's going on to draw Amazing Spider-Man, and the main gist of the opening is that he's talking about the difference between working with the very funny and collaborative Fabian Nassau, because they basically started the New Warriors book so they could make it whatever they wanted. But now he's moving into a book that's very established that Dave Michelini has been writing for years. So he doesn't have as much input. But as we discussed in episode nine in Robin's Reading Rainbow when we were reviewing the Spider-Man book there... He was the artist who created Carnage. I mean, he's the one who created that look. I'm going to beg you to do something when this episode drops. Please drop the picture of this article, because that picture of him with that mustache is holy moly. Like, <laughs> you can't get as, as 92 as that. That's fantastic. This transcends time, this picture. Yes, I mean, it was everybody's look at the time, which is interesting. When you see us, like Peter David looks like that. You know, you get Sam Key looks like that it's just that that's the comic book little skinny guys with glasses mustaches and balding a little bit yeah but what i found fascinating about his connection to carnage is he explains that the original carnage design was actually going to be a black costume like venom the main difference was there was going to be a red smear on the front like a spider had been crushed on his chest that was somebody's idea that they presented to him. <laughs> I don't hate it, but I do like the look of Carnage better, what it ultimately became. But I I don't hate that idea because it is the offspring of Venom. It will be slightly different, but okay. I'll go with it either way. But Mark Bagley is the one that tweaked it to give it that red and black look to it. And he said, it's kind of a pain to draw, but it looks so amazing. I can't complain. I got to be the person that created an iconic character. Uh, And he also mentions finally that the fact that he's now drawing a Spider-Man book, random people in his life understand when he's in casual conversation. He's like, yeah, I draw comic books. And instead of the blank stares he got when he said, well, I draw new warriors for Marvel. Huh? He's like, I draw Spider-Man. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know Spider-Man, yeah. Oh, yeah, Spider-Man. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, great, great, great. 
Fantastic. But man, I just, I can't believe Mark Bagley's longevity, and he's just a solid artist. He's just all these years, you know, stayed steady, and I think that's, there's something to be said for that. I agree. There are a lot of huge big-time artists that were, you know, coming out in their prime in this time period that if you see them now, you still are in awe of them because they're just legendary but they've dropped off a little bit where he stayed consistent all the way through. And I, I agree 100%. All right. The next one, we know that you are a fan of things like Justice Society, the JSA book, the last 15 years, however long it's been. This next article is called All Star Memories by a guy named Jack Curtin, who is an OLD, old school comics fan, who recalls reading All Star comics featuring the original adventures of the Justice Society as a kid in the 40s wow and so he just gives this whole rundown of what a big deal it was at the time because for those who don't know it was kind of like the 90s where everybody wanted to produce comics but what all-star comics did creating the justice society of america was bring together characters from a whole bunch of different companies this wasn't like dc had a bunch of random books and they said now let's make a team out of them that wasn't it at all these were a bunch of different publishers who said yes let's cooperate and our sales will increase So the original lineup, just for those who don't know of Justice Society of America, was The Flash, The Green Lantern, The Spectre, the called The Hawkman, Dr. Fate, The Hour Man, The Sandman, and The Atom, as well as Johnny Thunder. So that was the original lineup, and then he mentioned how Wonder Woman was the secretary and never got to go on any adventures. She always stayed at the headquarters until the later issues, and then they started bringing her in as a member of the team in full. That's a very 1940s thing to do. Yeah. (laughs) It doesn't make sense, though. She had her own book where she was having adventures and fighting people and saving the day. Like It just doesn't make sense that they would bring her in, oh, now you're the secretary. And she's probably stronger than all of them. (laughs) It's interesting, though, you know, as I've said, I'm a big Justice Society fan. I always have been. One of the cool things about Justice Society is, unlike Justice League, the team for JSA has always pretty much maintained certain staples. Like, you know, there's always certain senior members that have always been there from the beginning. There's several runs of Justice League where, where Batman... Superman and Wonder Woman are just not in the book or they're not major players where JSA always had this sort of steadiness to it. And what was cool about it in this day and age is those characters from the 40s have evolved as if they become kind of like mentors to younger heroes as they grow the JSA in its scale of members which i've always kind of respected like wow like, like the old guard is mentoring the new guard so that they don't go out of control with their powers and stuff like that so I, if, if you like some jsa hit us up i'll tell you some good books to read to check it out for sure also in this issue is the debut of regular cover artist bart sears we've talked about him quite a bit he gets his own monthly tutorial feature called brutes and babes but they originally pitched the title to him as what if we called it art with bart which was met with an awkward silence <laughs> so he offered up roots of babes and that was it growing up i feel like every every kid that liked comics at one point said oh i could draw comics and my mom got me one of those how to draw characters book and it always started with 900 circles for all their muscles and everything like that and i could never do like 
the shading and stuff like that. And I'm looking at this Brutes and Babes, and I remember seeing some of the designs like this. I'm like, okay, draw these concentric circles, and you know, then you'll start filling things in. And it's kind of funny. I was like, I remember that book, and I wish I knew what happened to that. And I kind of want to buy a new one now. <laughs> <laughs> well, but hey, with these issues of Wizard, that's pretty much what you get almost every issue. <laughs> it's like, start with this, then move on to this. Next up is the Scavenger Hunt Contest. So this is the inaugural Scavenger Hunt debuting in issue 10. This became a very popular event for Wizard going forward, but they asked readers to come up with the craziest items, like... A copy of your report card was worth three points plus an extra point for every A. <laughs> or give us, send us six inches of fishing line for three points. A Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Band-Aid. Used or unused. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it's specified all new. Or a clean napkin from Dunkin' Donuts or Pizza Hut. They wanted fans to mail this stuff to them? That was my understanding. Is basically you were supposed <laughs> to put it all together in an envelope all the things that you could find and put together because it also included like trivia so they would ask you like certain comic book trivia and include that or find an Aunt May trading card which did exist in the Marvel Universe trading cards and like include that but the actual most valuable item that you could include was an original joke it had to be 25 words or less and that was what they wanted if you could make them laugh I guess you got the, the maximum amount of points and so what they would do is they would total up their points if you won the grand prize, you got a full set of Marvel Universe trading cards 1 through 3, DC Cosmic cards, and X-Men trading cards. So you'd have the full set of everything from all of those. This is fascinating to me. Fascinating. I vaguely remember this from later issues, but, but now that I'm looking at it, I'm looking at some of the things that they're asking for. A madman wrote this, this scavenger <laughs> hunter. <laughs> Oh, and it gets worse. I mean, it gets crazier as the issues go on and they decide to bring it back. The first, second, and third prizes were interesting in that the first prize was a five-year subscription to Wizard. So even though they thought this might be the last issue, they're like, ah, you can win. Uh, You know, subscription to a magazine that won't exist anymore. Second prize was the Comic-Con issue of Wizard Number 1, which they were now trying to say was going to be collectible, especially if the publication went under. And third prize was a random comic book signed by the artist of that book. I almost want to, in the, in the not-too-distant future, come up with some sort of our own scavenger hunt and have our listeners like tweet at us pictures of things they find if we just can come up with the craziest things since That's a people idea. are home anyway. Like, you know... Let's do it like a fun little scavenger hunt. Whoever gets the most, we can give them some sort of a prize or something. That'd be kind of fun. We'll talk about it in future episodes, guys. So we'll think about it. We'll flush this idea out. For sure. Now, the winners were said to be announced in issue 14, but I looked ahead and could not find any mention of the scavenger hunt. I don't know how they eventually announced that or if they just forgot, but maybe they did it earlier. They just said, ah, let's just get it out of the way. Here's who won. The publisher's mom won. There you go. <laughs> okay, next up is an article called Wizard's Realm, and this is about comic book role-playing games. So I'm curious, Michael, you know, we're both nerds of a sort, comic book surely, but did you ever play Dungeons and Dragons or another type of RPG? So I always wanted to try Dungeons and Dragons, but my friends were not into it. It was not one of those games that they were like, yeah, let's let's play this wizarding game. No, 
But I, my, my one buddy I had growing up from like kindergarten, every summer we would play Risk and it would, we would like set it up in one of our basements and play all summer long. And that was as the extent of it, like a, a long drawn out game. But we never really did any kind of like RPG games until they went on to like PlayStation or whatever. I would play, uh, I think it was like Kingdom Hearts or one of those different RPGs, but never a Dungeons Never with Dragons. a book and some dice or anything. It wasn't my thing, mostly because most of my friends would be like, what? No. I gotta come up with stories? No, that's not gonna happen. Sorry, guys. See, my brother was in high school in the 80s, and he was a super fantasy, you know, sci-fi nerd. And so he and his group of friends, they played Dungeons and Dragons. I was too young, because I was born when he was 17. But I would, growing up, see his room, and it was filled with all the ephemera from those games, including he had my mom, who was an artist, paint him a picture of this wizard in, like, his little hut and he has like all these like melting candles and skulls and stuff like so he was like super into that but I didn't get into it until later in high school myself my friends we were all drama kids and so drama kids like to act out things we like to tell stories so my friends were all two years older than me when they graduated they started playing this game called Riffs and you guys might remember Riffs because it was advertised heavily in comic books it was a golden robot on top of a blue robot and he was punching his face in like it was a very violent image and so we played that game and my character for my one campaign i was allowed to play was called rufus Kilgrave, and he was like a lunatic kind of in the deadpool style he was just unpredictable that's at least how i played him and my friends like hated me because i was disrupting everything and you're ruining the magic yeah. of the story man <laughs> i'm like guys you literally play three different campaigns throughout the week you guys are addicted to this we don't go to movies anymore we don't really hang out you guys just play riffs and so this went on for like two years so i was kind of out of the loop for a while because i was not cool enough to play it right <laughs> but i remember these comic book based rpg games especially there was a marvel superhero set and in the cart was really a hobby shop that i used to go to where I would buy my DC Cosmic cards and whatever else I remember always seeing this box that was the Marvel Super Heroes RPG game and I was very curious about it but I knew that I didn't have the stick to if you will to learn all the rules and go with it nor did I have that expanded circle who would play with me. So like you go to a card store right so baseball cards and you know collectible cards did your card store or your comic book store ever have like Magic the Gathering tournaments? Oh for sure yeah I, I actually walked in on one one time where these guys are like you can't do that with this card and these two nerds are like grabbing each other by the shirt like it's gonna be a hockey oh, fight I've seen that too absolutely I was thinking about this and I'm like I remember one time I was in the comic book store and then one of the guys who worked there was starting to bring out a bunch of folding tables and setting up chairs and I'm like what's going on oh we got a Magic the Gathering tournament tonight I was like a what and and so I was like alright I'll I'm curious you piqued my interest and these guys all you know I'm nerdy, and these guys made me look like Brad Pitt. <laughs> and they were going at it. And I saw, like you said, some guy, you can't throw that card. And one dude reached across the table like he was going to choke slam the guy on the table. I was like, and I turned to the owner. I'm like, is this normal? She goes, yeah, this is this is pretty standard for this. But it brings in a lot of money, so I don't really care. I was like, <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> So yeah, it's, it, it is a violent game. I found that to be the case, and we will get there eventually. But I mean, in about three years from this point is where magic really exploded.
did. And it was just like a huge phenomenon to the point where Wizard created a role-playing card game magazine called Inquest. Oh, wow. And they just focused entirely on that genre. You know, and even it was so big that now the comic book companies jumped in, right? Because there were overpower cards from Marvel and all these other RPG card games. So, yeah, uh, interesting to revisit that when the time comes. So, next up, the Wizard News section, there is a 1992 release schedule for Image Comics. And I am just curious because... People who were anticipating them at the time, if you're out there listening, tell us, were they meeting these deadlines? We're going to post this on social media, because I know that there were certain books that were famously late from Image, and here they were just laying it all out like, no, you're going to get them, they're going to be monthly. And so I I want to know, which ones did they miss and how long was the gap? So if anybody wants to tell me that, I'd be very interested to hear it. Also, curious for you, Michael, because again, we're big action figure guys, we used to buy them back in the day do you remember seeing zen the intergalactic ninja action figures i have to say with a absolute certainty that is a resounding no (laughs) i have never in my life seen these almost like amalgam of teenage mutant ninja turtles meets swamp thing one of them looks like what's that guy that's like a character from the simpsons who was like the superhero dude radioactive man radioactive man that's it i was like i I don't know these characters no yeah well and it's something that i didn't know it was based on a comic but when i would go to toys r us there were always zen the intergalactic ninja figures next to the teenage mutant ninja turtles and eventually in the clearance aisle that i love to walk down so i'd always see these zen figures i'm like who is this because they came packed with a comic and eventually they were produced as a regular series it was kind of like an environmental comic as i recall and i think they got picked up by archie comics and archie comics was doing the ninja turtles comics as well so it's all very closely related the figures look very much something out of the ninja turtles but like the rejected characters of ninja turtles (laughs) also mentioned there just briefly and i think this is probably the first mention of the character but evil ernie they're stating has a one shot coming up but as if he already had been produced but maybe they just weren't covering it very much but it won't be very long also until evil ernie is a fixture of wizard magazine and if you guys don't remember him i mean he looks like if if anybody is an iron maiden fan out there looks like the mascot of iron maiden but he's got like this big black hair he's but he's like a skeleton he wears a leather jacket and a little button with a smiley face on it and so evil ernie was like the most heavy metal of comic books and then last thing they mentioned is is that Galactus is getting a new herald. Yes, his name is Morg. M-O-R-G. It's gonna mm-hmm. kill ya, send you to the morgue. <laughs> I just think that's funny in a comic book sense, because Galactus... Oh, hey guys, did you hear? Galactus is getting a new herald. You know, he's, he's on the lookout for a new character to join him, you know? So, because his, his heralds never work out. You know, they just don't want to hang around. <laughs> Not a good work situation in the Galactus organization. <laughs> yeah there's no synergy in their in their uh in, in their corporation <laughs> they need to do some corporate retreats maybe yeah. just kind of figure out do some trust exercises nobody wants to catch galactus no <laughs> okay next up is this neat feature i find 
at least for people like us, because this is the Brat Pack, where they're interviewing a pair of 14-year-olds and a 12-year-old from New York and New Jersey to ask them about their buying habits. And I think that's awesome, because this was us at the time, yeah. right? I mean, this, yeah. who are our peers and what were they thinking? And basically, no surprise, Marvel is all that matters to these kids. Okay, like they just, every time they're asked a question, they're basically just saying Marvel is awesome. And one of the quotes is, DC is inconsistent too. At times their characters seem all powerful and sometimes they act like such wimps. Reading a DC comic is like reading a Marvel in slow motion. (laughs) One of the kids even says, well, DC, or really any other publisher, can't get you excited like Marvel. They have so many cool characters, and all the other companies are sort of boring. So Marvel is in step, and DC is stuck back in the 1960s. Ouch, that's pretty rough. <laughs> yeah, and, and the interviewer was like, well, we didn't mean to make this a DC slam. And they're like, well, we wish DC would catch up, but they're so far behind. And so I found that fascinating. It's actually even mentioned in a future Market Watch section just how far behind DC is and that they're just dropping, dropping, dropping. I think it really had to have been the death of Superman that got them any sort of notoriety at all. That and breaking of Batman's back. If if they didn't do those two things, DC, as we know it, probably would no longer exist, I, I feel like, at this point. Because that, that did save the company because they made gazillions of dollars in that black bag with the bloody Superman symbol on it. Yeah, that, <laughs> that alone probably saved them for a couple of years. Yeah, and especially in this era where now there's a new kid on the block with Image, and so the interviewer asks these kids, well, what do you think about Image? And one kid's like, I think their books will look really cool, but the stories will be so-so. The reason these guys got so popular was because they worked on hot Marvel titles. That's a pretty insightful 14-year-old right there. I, I don't disagree with that 14-year-old either. I think that's probably pretty spot on. I agree. All right. And we don't have too much to discuss in the toying around section, so we're not going to do a whole Asriel's action figure fury. In fact, you just got a bonus episode from me talking about Toy Fair 92, so I hope that suffices. Uh, but Brian Cunningham in this article actually mentions a fun story that's in two parts. It, it continues in issue 11, but he's talking about when he was a kid and how big star wars was but he hadn't seen the movie but all his friends had star wars action figures so he bought a luke skywalker just to fit in (laughs) and then he finally got to see star wars like a year later and he's like oh these are pretty cool i have a little secret back at the time i was not a big star wars fan but all my friends were and i bought like a stormtrooper figure not really knowing what it was other than i thought it was cool it was like it was a bad guy in white like yeah i got this cool bad guy figure from star wars and they're like that's a stormtrooper and i was like okay what does that mean i didn't know <laughs> but <laughs> it just looked cool man it was like four bucks the eyes of judgment are going on me right now from all the people listening how did he not know what star wars was back then you were just holding out for die hard you're yeah, like when's die hard coming out oh i'm still <laughs> waiting for a die hard action figure let me tell you <laughs> They also here, we talked about uh, in our Comic-Con special, the real customized action figure boom that was about to hit the magazine. Well, this was the first 
customized action figure that was submitted by a reader and they just posted one little picture of it but it's a ted cord blue beetle from justice league international at the time and it's made out of an unidentified secret wars action figure to me it looks like wolverine and they just like smoothed over the head because it's got a mouth on it which is why i was thinking wolverine because few of them had that look to them and the fact that he made kind of shorts on him makes me wonder like where it came from because what was he trying to cover up that is now shorts and the gloves itself have like a bump out which i don't know if the wolverine figure did but i'm curious and it's a it's a a pretty good looking figure though i'll give it that yeah i mean it could have been captain america just as easily or if he had the daredevil figure i guess but then joe would be cringing and so would you be like no not the daredevil don't do it Now, collecting comics in the 90s, Pat McCallum's column, he mentions here, why are comic prices going up? And I think that was a thing at this time because, you know, a lot of people were used to paying, you know, if you look back at the old cover prices, I mean, books were now like a dollar, a dollar fifty, you know, sometimes two dollars if it was a real special issue. And so people were kind of like, wait, what is going on? Like, why, why are we paying so much? And he mentions, you know, first off, the price of the paper the comics are printed on is constantly rising. So the publishers are forced to combat the increase. And then he also mentions the print run on comics also determines what price is slapped on the covers. The printers who take the artwork and put it in the pages and staple them together charge different rates to actually make the book. And then he specifies also that you usually, like with anything else, you get a better rate if you're buying in bulk. So Marvel and DC, if they're printing up 50,000 copies of a book, they can afford to charge just a dollar for it. But he mentions that an indie publisher, if they're trying to sell a book, they gotta charge you a little bit more because they know they're not gonna sell sell that many books so they got to make their money back somehow and so their book might be two dollars or 250 but you got to think of it as a special piece of art it's not a mass-produced item Hmm. the other point he brings up now especially in this era is that it costs more to produce a gimmick cover if you're going to do special treatments to the cover and special paper and whatever it's going to be that's going to cost more money at the printer so speaking of gimmicks let's get into guy gardner Gimmicks a go go. How bizarre! How bizarre! How bizarre! This month, there are a couple of books being released with special cover enhancements. Marvel has Web of Spider Man 90 that celebrates the 30th anniversary with a giant hologram sticker on the cover. Also, New Warriors 25 features a special die-cut cover with a black and monochrome ink front piece. What does that mean? I don't know what that means. <laughs> I, that, that is a hard one to decipher. It I really got some is. idea. But... <laughs> DC is in it, too, with the Eclipso, the Darkness Within number one, with a purple plastic eclipso diamond on the cover this protruding gem will ruin the surrounding books 
in your long boxes. So beware, folks. They really did that. They had a yeah. like a oh my god. Because he's and he's literally he's like you know it's like his fingers are holding something on the cover and then they glued a plastic gem to it. And I've talked to people in the past that bought this book and they're like, yeah, I put it in my long box and it creates an indentation on the book you put in front of it and then on the, that book itself that it's pushing back into it. So it's just like it's a terrible idea. I actually have a copy, but somebody had removed the gem that's weird that's really i'm like i'm flabbergasted by that that's like what (laughs) (laughs) anything they could do to get your attention you know you know how much that must have cost additional to have that glued on you know to the oh my goodness i yeah yeah yeah, well i mean but dc they're measuring it out right they're really trying to find something you already got a big event going that everybody wants to buy well i don't think it was eclipso that one didn't hang on there Oh, so I looked up the book real quick. It is actually valued at about $8 on eBay right now. Really? Just, yeah. just for the kitsch factor, I just think. Just for the kitsch factor, yeah, it must be. Well, DC was looking for some hype, but there were two guys that found it on their own. Yep, it's time for Robin Todd's Hype Machine. Here we go. The, this this Rob-centric issue. You would think, right? Yeah, it's a Liefeld-heavy issue. He's doing the cover. But Todd manages to get a lot of mentions, not the least of which is because there are three different ads for issue number 11 in this issue. Like, they just really want to say, hey, you are going to want to order it. We're going to have an exclusive McFarlane spawn trading card, and it's going to be all about his new character. So really, guys, order as many copies as you can to sell in your stores. That had to be the thinking behind it, because, like, Keep us in business, please, please yeah. keep us in business. <laughs> but as a result, I mean, Rob and Todd are neck and neck in the tally, but a final mention of Todd in the letters section ask about whether or not he will complete the promised Venom miniseries for Marvel. Spoiler, he won't. That actually put Todd in the lead. So Rob got 13 mentions this issue, Todd got 14, but still, the total running right now is Rob at 60 and Todd at 45. But again, next issue is a spawn issue, so Todd may catch up. I think we're going to see a huge shift in, in the spawn era as it as it gets rolling and, and all that stuff all right well we mentioned the 30th anniversary of spider-man there there's actually a, a short article about that in this issue and they were releasing the 30th anniversary editions of web of spider-man right here we talked about that have those giant hologram stickers on the covers michael i know that you had uh, all of those you just sent me some pictures of them i have them as well but that's why we're gonna jump into heroes in motion In this issue, Andy Mangles tracks the development of the Spider-Man live-action film that has been in pre-production hell for years among various scripts and studios. He mentions that the first live-action Spider-Man was seen on a children's educational program, The Electric Company, in the 70s. Do you remember this? I I remember this. 
Yeah. When I read this, I was like, oh, because in our episode zero, when we were talking about our origin stories with comics and all those things, I think I probably saw Spider-Man for the first time actually on this show. Because I had to have been like two or three and watching The Electric Company and he doesn't say anything, right? But he's just a guy in a great Spider-Man costume and the word bubbles would appear next to his head what he was thinking. And yeah, like I remember it vividly. I, I do too. And, and when you see the picture of the costume, I, I remember this 100%. I think this too was probably my real introduction to Spider-Man. Other than, I don't know if I ever mentioned this, my grandmother used to have this old eight track player and she had the soundtrack to one of those like made for tv spider-man movies really oh my god it was the best i used to go over there like when i would like fake sick as a kid and want to get out of school my mother would drop me off my grandmother's house and we would sit there and, and drink tea and and dip chips ahoy cookies and we would put this eight-track tape of Spider-Man soundtrack and listen to it all the time. I wish I sh- she still had that. I would find that in a minute, but I, I'm sure I'm, I'm going to go on eBay for that. If that exists, I'm going to buy an eight-track player. Because yeah. I've been looking for that soundtrack for a long time. Uh, I, was, I love that score. So anyway, next was a live-action television series starring Nicholas Hammond that started as a TV movie in 1977, then ran as an hour-long series on CBS from 1978 to 79. There was also a famous, and I love this thing, was the Japanese Spider-Man series at the same time where there was a giant robot spaceship. I've only seen bits and pieces of it, but every time I see it, it's like, wow, this is this is crazy. This is It's so, like, Japanese, like, Godzilla style stuff, but I, I love it. I thought it was hilarious. I've seen bits and pieces of it. Yeah, well, and I, what I find funny is a lot of people probably think, wow, they didn't know anything about the American comics, but Stan Lee was involved in the development of that show. Of course he was. <laughs> so, so, so he was just like, no, you go your way. That's what works in your country. Okay. But I, I, I thought it was hilarious. In fact, Stan Lee. Because of that, he eventually tried to get the original Power Rangers project off the ground. He pitched that to American television stations, you know, taking these Super Sentai shows to do that. And nobody wanted it at the time. It wasn't until years later, you know. In 1984, Canon Pictures bought the rights to make a Spider-Man movie after Roger Corman let the rights Laps, and it was going to be directed by Toby Hooper, who made, get this, the Texas Chainsaw Massacres and Poltergeist. Yeah. <laughs> I love Poltergeist. I love that movie. Like, I, I'm not a huge horror fan, but that movie, whenever it's on, it's just so different of a type of horror movie for me, and I, I really love it. Maybe See, I've also, never seen it. Oh, it's got Coach in it. Coach is in I it, I know. Man. It's so iconic. Watch. I've seen the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre a couple times. We had to watch it in film school a few times because it was one of those movies like, oh, it was made for such a low budget and you know, whatever. And it was so original at the time. Terrifies me. I, 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 I've always watched it with like my fingers in front of my eyes half the time because it scares me so much. Yeah, I watched it alone in my room when I was like 15 because I was old enough to pass for an adult and rent R-rated movies. Did you sleep till you were 30? (laughs) That movie and like The Exorcist, I didn't sleep for about a year. I was like, oh, God. (laughs) But it'd be weird to see a a 
director who's known for horror to do a Spider-Man, but then I guess Sam Raimi is known for horror, and then he did. Yeah. Ama- so it's it's I guess they were kind of going for that theme, which makes sense. Okay, I, I I'm on board. From 1985 to 1990. Various people wrote scripts, including Stan Lee, all of which featured Dr. Octopus as the main villain. Doc Ock is working on an anti-force machine, which seems somewhat similar to his plan in the Sam Raimi Spider-Man 2 film. Also during this time, Albert Pune, who made the 1990 Captain America film, is attached to direct. In 1991, the rights to the film landed with Carol Co who had made the first Rambo films, and James Cameron announced that he would be writing and directing the film. Cameron is reportedly contracted to make the film called The Crowded Room for 20th Century Fox, which means he would not be available to make Spider-Man until at least 1993 when the contract option runs out. Now it looks like Christmas of 93 for Spidey. Well, we all know that's not true. But hey, it was wishful thinking because even still, though, like if if Christmas of 93 was when they were expecting for another Spider-Man movie, this issue is what, June of 92? Like it back then, especially editing on film, it took like two and a half, three years to cut a movie up. So they were talking that's. That's a little ambitious that it would be 93. Oh, I mean, in all their reports, it's always like, it's just around the corner. It'll be out in six months. Don't worry. He's working on it. And I actually was looking at a, there's another one from 1994 when Cameron is making True Lies. Because this Crowded Room movie never came out. Never came out. And then he's working on True Lies. And it says, Cameron says he still wants to make the Spider-Man movie after True Lies. And then that didn't happen. Like, he stuck with that project for so long. And it just never came together and if you want all the details there's a really great podcast called greatest movies never made it's at never made podcast on twitter if you want to follow them they did like i think a four or five part series on all the spider-man scripts i mean it is nuts uh when you get into all those details so i'm interested to check that out that'd be kind of cool so let's close up Heroes in Motion, and where are we going to from here? Well, I think it's time I learned a little something, because we're going to jump into a discussion of Cable. So when Adam asked me to talk about Cable, he's one of, if not my favorite X-Men character. And so I did a little research to wait, kind of... Wait, wait, wait a minute, Michael. What about Kitty Pride? Well, okay. All right, fine. He's like my in my top five. Fair. We'll we'll, we'll give it that. Anywho, I had to take my stream of consciousness knowledge of Cable and kind of put it into some sort of common sense, not just spew information out to you. There are certain things that I, I knew most of this stuff already, but I forgot certain things. But it was cool to dive back into the history a little bit. So he was first created by Chris Claremont and his first appearance as... Nathan Christopher Charles Summers is in Uncanny X-Men number 201 in January of 86. They announced about a month before in the previous issue that Madeline Pryor is pregnant with Scott Summers' baby. And then a month later, Nathan Summers appears. Nathan Summers also has a lot of aliases other than Cable. Nathan Winters, Nathan Dayspring. The Askani Sun. Yeah, Askani Sun or Asaki Sun, <laughs> some of that. Soldier X, Chosen One, 
Traveler, and also there was a, a run where he was known as X-Man. And the main version of Cable is really rarely known as X-Man, but there's like kind of a cloned version of him that doesn't have the techno-organic virus. And he went by X-Men, but he's also Nathan Summers. Yeah, he had his own series in the mid-90s. He yeah. was like the young, hip version of Cable, yeah. Cable is one of the most convoluted characters in all of Marvel, mainly because whenever they want to change something about him, they just say, time travel. There you go. He did it. Because of time travel, they broke different timelines, and they will call it this. Anyway, so his power set, he's telepathic and telekinetic. And... Based on the extent of his powers, he's able to utilize it varies dramatically through throughout his appearances. Originally, both were limited by his need to restrain his organic infection. Like he doesn't often use his powers because he's using his power so much to hold back the virus in his body. So you never see him like use his telepathic abilities. You never see him use telekinesis. And the reason why they chalked it up to is he's using his mind all the time to control the virus from not killing him. So his powers were negligible compared to more traditional heroes or x-men or mutants and his fighting stylers fighting skills were far superior to his powers in this time period in the 90s well and, and michael let me mention yes powers but i think his most distinguishable feature is a giant gun like literally yes. if he doesn't have the gun you almost wouldn't know who cable is right I, I have all the cable trading cards from like 1991 until about 1995 and every single one of them is just a variation on a big honking gun in his hand. So they, they kind of tease this in the in Deadpool 2 where he kind of like builds his weapons and that's why they're so big. But depending on the writer, he uses like his telekinetic ability to kind of like construct the, the, the weapons and, and that's why they're always so big is because he kind of builds them out of other so, things. So he has, he's using his telekinesis just to be able to hold it up. Is that what's going on? <laughs> Basically, He's yeah. levitating the gigantic gun that's as big as him. Okay. Yeah. Eventually, the virus becomes so strong that he can't even control it, and the techno-organic gets bigger and bigger on him as, as time goes on. And depending on the artist, it's either sort of there or it's all over the place. So, moving on. Parents are Scott Summers and Madeline Pryor. And if you don't know who Madeline Pryor is, she's the clone of Jean Grey. Now, let this thing sink in for a second. So, Scott Summers, Cyclops who loves Jean Grey and is always in love with Jean Grey, other than the White Queen at certain points in the future and so on and so forth. He's having a relationship with her clone and gets the clone pregnant. Why? Scott's a freak. <laughs> well, I was going to say because it's comics, and if you don't know, just chalk it up to that. That's what it is. So his first appearance as an adult, or as Cable, is in New Mutants number 86 in February of 1990. He doesn't actually like make a full appearance in it, but he's sort of teased at the very end. His first full appearance is in 87 in March of 98. Originally, Cable was not intended to be Nathan Summers or Scott Summers' son, but editor Bob Harris wanted to shake things up, and he and Louise Simonson thought a military leader would be a great idea and tasked Rob Liefeld to design the character. It's like ultra 
military crazy guy came back into the past and caused all these kind of problems. And Rob Liefeld gave him the name Cable. And anytime you see an interview about Cable with Liefeld in it, he always makes mention that he came up with the name for Cable. Trust me, you'll find it, you'll laugh. And you're like, okay, great. So anyway, both Liefeld and Simonson thought he should be a time traveler from the future. They didn't think about him being of the era and being Scott Summers' son. That didn't even come into play at all. Later on, Jim Lee and Wills Portacios were writing X-Factor, which X-Factor, if you don't know, is it's a cool book because it gave – it took the original X-Men and gave them their own story and totally new looks. And it focuses around Cyclops and Jean Grey. And they decided to make Nathan or Cable Cyclops' son and said, this is Nathan sent back from the future. And that's who he is. And that's how it established. But that took about a year or two after he had his full appearances in New Mutants. Yeah, and I'll mention here, Michael, is that actually at the time of the publication of this issue, it was not known. It wasn't. Because these are all the questions that they lay out in their brief bio. They basically just say, is he in fact Nathan Summers, the son of Scott, Cyclops Summers, and Madeline Pryor? Do Cable's seldom used telekinetic powers come from his mother, Madeline Pryor, who was a clone of Jean Grey, a telekinetic? It's a definite possibility. And then they basically like are saying there's all these possibilities things we don't know about him and i think that's what was building the excitement around cable right the ex-editors were smart to say yeah let's let's tease this and let's tease that but like you said maybe over time it eventually started getting a little convoluted and the x-men animated series cable didn't show up till maybe the second or third season and i believe when he appears they also reveal that he is Cyclops' son. I can't remember, I have to rewatch the show, but you know, I knew that was kind of a thing that was a topic in the show. I was like, wow, that's kind of cool. Now, in X-Factor, during this storyline, is when Nathan gets infected with a techno-organic virus by Apocalypse. And it's found that the technology in the far, far future could save Nathan's life. They didn't even establish that that the you know techno-organic and, and his telekinesis couldn't be controlled or whatever, but they said, okay, in the far future, he can be saved and, and get this virus removed. So Scott Summers gives Nathan to a woman named Sister Orsakana and takes the baby into the future to be cured. Cable then has two different ongoing series over time. The first one was Cable, Blood and Metal, which I've never heard of until now, and I never read it. Then I knew that he had his own ongoing series called Cable, which amazingly ran 107 issues the first time from May 93 to August 2003. Then they bring his book back in the late 2000s like around 2008 he does a whole new run when they do like the messiah war and this whole thing where where hope summers is another baby that scott finds and makes this baby a summers even though i don't think she's actually blood related to the summers then gives the baby to cable to 
protect in the future because this is supposed to be the mutant messiah. It's a very good story. I really, really love that book. And that's kind of what got me into Cable as an adult. So, Michael, this is my question. In the Cable books that you've read, and as because we're about to get into the period where I feel like maybe this changes, but to me, in the appearances of Cable that I've read, I've never really gotten a handle on what his character is. Like I say, if he doesn't have the giant gun, what is he known for other than his look? It varies on the writer, but the thing about Cable that I've always found most interesting is that he knows that he's a man outside of time, whether it's time traveling or not. And he only has the ability to jump time at certain points. And his time jump ability has to charge. And because he's battling this virus in his body that's always kind of there, and he's kind of like a military but like mercenary kind of a guy. And the idea behind Cable essentially was this. And this is where it's going to get really, really crazy. And you're going to be like, whoa, this is bonkers. In 94, there was a, a miniseries called The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix where Cyclops and the real Jean Grey at one point get pulled into the future by a time-displaced Rachel Summers, now Mother Akanza or Sakana. She pulls Scott and Jean's minds into the far future and puts them in the bodies of these people named Slim and Red. (laughs) Stay with me here. Where they stayed in that far future for 12 years to raise young Nathan Summers. Now, let me back up. This child was born of the parents of Cyclops and Madeline Pryor, the clone of Jean Grey. But now real Jean Grey is acting as his mother in the far future. It's twisted, man. (laughs) It's the 90s. So anyway, (laughs) during this story, it was determined that Mr. Sinister actually was the person who created Nathan Summers in utero inside of Madeline Pryor as a being that would ultimately grow up to become Cable in order to destroy Apocalypse. That was his purpose, was he was meant to be the only being in all of creation that could destroy Apocalypse. Okay, so that's why he was this messiah and had a destiny, huh? Yeah, and... It's kind of often changed and depends on, on how it goes, but he's always kind of had this ongoing battle with Bishop, where they've always kind of been guys chasing after each other. And the, the thing about Cable that I've always really liked, especially adult Cable, is similarly to Wolverine, he always kind of plays this kind of fathery type of a figure, even though he doesn't want to be or he doesn't know how to be. And especially when he comes with Hope Summers because he's given this baby and he's like, I, I, I live in a world full of death and war. How do I protect a, a newborn? And he learns how to become a father and a, and a man and a good person. And he's a very interesting character because he's so broken, but yet he, he knows he has to follow whatever his mission is. And no matter what, he always means well even though he does things that are crazy at times. But he's also oftentimes kind of associated as like, this is the guy that if 
every other mutant was dead, this guy could save the world. And I, wow. and, 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 okay. and he, he carries that kind of burden with him. Like he knows that this is who I was meant to be. I was grown and designed to be this. And he lives with that kind of concern all the time. So if he's got this great destiny, I think it's important then that we look back to what you mentioned at the beginning, Michael, his first appearance as Baby Cable. Yes, let's get to... Punisher's Price Guide. Alright, so what we have is Uncanny X-Men number 201. Yes, the first baby Nathan Summers appearance. And so at the time, Wizard actually has this listed as the number one book in their Wizard's Top 10 section due to the mystery surrounding Cable's true identity. Like we said, nobody knew what was going on with him. And if there was a possibility that it would eventually be revealed that this was actually Scott and Madeline Pryor's son, you know, if this is the real first appearance then we gotta have it right it's gonna be worth some cash so based on that if you look in the price guide in 1992 uncanny x-men number 201 is listed at 35 dollars now it goes for around $10 ungraded. So, I mean, it just tells you how big a deal he was that it could have that much going for it. But I, I mean, I even found it selling in a lot of four books, just kind of a run of the, the Uncanny X-Men around that time for 20 bucks for the whole lot. So that was like four bucks a book. It seems like that particular part of his origin or his mystery maybe has not held as much value over time as the characters developed. So, sorry, Uncanny X-Men number 201, but you are a burnout. Oh, I forgot one other thing I wanted to just add. So, another cool thing about Cable is, and they established this much later on, is because he's a time traveler and he's jumped from place to place, even though he gets killed a lot in comics, a lot. <laughs> Because he's jumped around in time, they somehow established that he's virtually immortal because he's there's an always a version of him somewhere throughout yeah, he time. exists everywhere that's yeah. that's a pretty cool I, yeah i like that factor of it that's pretty interesting to consider but now i think it's time that we jump into another creature who seems to exist in many different forms a creature of the night if you will let's get into robin's reading rainbow Okay, so notable books being released this month include Spawn Number 1 from Image, which we'll talk about more next month, Terror Inc. from Marvel, Unity Zero from Valiant, and Robocop vs. Terminator from Dark Horse. But DC has a new Batman book out this month called Shadow of the Bat Number 1. All right, so this is a book I remember I had this first issue back in the day 
because that painted cover of Batman being restrained by a bunch of orderlies in white is just so dynamic. I had to have it. I had to find out what that was about. So when you saw a painted cover, you're like, oh, this is going to be great. And then you thought, oh, is it going to be like the Arkham Asylum graphic novel? And then you open it up and it's not. Another bait and switch. But the story inside is so good. It's so you, good. You don't care about the art because the art is serviceable. It's not anything special, but the story itself is pretty amazing. And I know, Michael, this is one of your favorite Bat books ever. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Shadow of the Bat. I love that book. The funny thing about this particular issue is I didn't realize until I reread it today, actually, how far into this issue does it take Till we even see a glimpse of Batman. Yeah, you forget all about him. Right. You see his rogues gallery, because you got this guy, Jeremiah Arkham, who is the new head of Arkham Asylum, and he's there, like, literally demolishing the old building, building up a a high-tech facility, and then so you see all the inmates getting moved out, so you see the Joker and the Penguin and all the, you know, the the Scarecrow pops up, and Jeremiah Arkham is the star of this book, and he is a fascinating character. Character. Yeah. Like, it, it's really interesting to see that he basically has a superpower and that he just maybe genetically, because his family members have dealt with these criminally insane people for decades, that he can just almost see into the mind of a psychotic person and say the right thing that shuts them down. And even though he's just a guy, he's not anything special, he doesn't have any powers, the way they draw him, he's very intimidating looking, even though he's just a psychiatrist or a doctor. One of my favorite moments in this issue was there's a part where there's like two guards talking and basically they say that he designed the building as a classic labyrinth. And I've always liked that kind of thought when it comes to the idea of Arkham as being a labyrinth. It's just like this maze that never ends and there's no escape. And I've always loved that idea. And the fact that they call it out in this issue was really, really cool to me. Yeah, and and the creative team on this book is Alan Grant is the writer and Norm Brayfogle is the artist and I've mentioned before that that's my Batman writing team like they're the ones the books that I've held on to you know, have their work in it and so it, it speaks a lot to Alan Grant's power with the character and what he understood what I find really cool about this issue too is just there's like an obligatory appearance before like I said there's no Batman but Tim Drake shows up just to battle a couple thugs real quick you know because he was the new hot Robin right everybody wanted to see him and so it's literally it almost means nothing it's just kind of like he's there there's some action to break up all the talkiness of the rest of the story but honestly like i i think the rest of the story is much more engaging you know there's one cool thing about that segment and if you didn't look at it close enough you wouldn't even know that it's there when nightwing comes and like meets up with robin just as robin's about ready to like grapple away you if you look at it very very close behind his back there is like this little thing and this is i've never seen before in comics they put his his actual bow staff when he collapses down and they have it behind him and you see it 
And I've never like you just oh it magically vanishes in every other comic, but they actually mm-hmm. showcase that it was there. I thought that was very very smart. I was like wow cool they actually made that real. Well, and I, I thought you were going to point out the fact that Nightwing's belt with all has the a, pouches on it has a bat symbol. I was very surprised. I was like wait a minute, I've never seen them had that before that I could think of. I always thought Nightwing was trying to distance himself from Batman. So anyway, that that was just an interesting little piece. So um, like you said, Michael. Uh, in the end, we finally get to this reveal. Because if it wasn't engaging enough, all of a sudden, Batman is chained up to a wall in a cell in Arkham Asylum. And it just says, Batman, alias unknown as yet, crime, murder. And you're like, what? Yeah. Batman is an Arkham... Like, to your knowledge... Was this tied into anything going on in Batman continuity, or was it just for this story and this is kind of the hook? That's the thing. I was thinking about this. I cannot think of anything at this time where Batman was accused of murder that he was brought to Arkham. Years, years later, in the in the mid-2000s, there's a, a run called Bruce Wayne fugitive bruce wayne murderer and bruce wayne's on the run for killing somebody but never could i think of that this i feel like this is a standalone story or or yeah takes takes place outside of continuity in some way if you wanted to get somebody to buy issue two that is how you do it because i mean batman is there he says he's innocent they're beating him up in the cell but he literally rips the chains out from the wall i mean he is like just with madness you know trying to escape but they do manage to like hose him down and you know he's uh subdued but yeah that was crazy so that's a dynamic image it's fantastic the only only criticism I have of this book when I was reading it is that, and this happens sometimes with the British writers, because there are so many prolific British writers in American comics, right? Especially during this era where they were bringing them over, whether it's Alan Grant or Alan Moore, all the Alans. Or Grant Morrison, all the Grants too. <laughs> And sometimes they drop in dialogue that is very English. And these are obviously taking place in America. But in this particular panel, you have Jeremiah Arkham talking to just this guy who's basically just like a grunt. He's like a blue-collar worker who is there to clean up all the debris from the old Arkham Asylum. And so Jeremiah Arkham's saying, you can count the cost in human pain. All too often, you can count the bodies. And then the guy here's like er quite and how did you become involved i was lucky it was my vocation and you're just like what huh er quite like that is a very british expression very british there's no way this guy you know in, in new york or wherever gotham's supposed to be new jersey whatever you want to say is like er, quite you know so that was one thing where i was just like alec grant a little bit new on the scene so yeah like that that one is like it stands out gotta remember who you're writing for so the most interesting thing to me in this whole issue happens near to the very end one of the orderlies, after they subdue Batman, tries to remove his mask and, and see his secret identity. And Jeremiah Arkham says, let him go now. I will learn his secret identity when he himself will tell me when he's good and ready. And on that day, 
he is cured. That to me, because, you know, there's so many times in Batman history where a villain captures him, knocks him unconscious and whatever, and takes him out. And they never take off his mask, but they never explain as to why. In this particular moment, he gives a reason as to why. He's like, I don't need to know who he is. Because I'll find a way to get him to tell me. And I thought that was pretty cool. That's like a super villain, you know? Like, that's pretty wild. Yeah, he doesn't want just that easy score, basically. Yeah. It's just like, no, it's like, oh, we're going to work at this and I will be triumphant. Yeah. So very cool, very psychological take. And it makes me want to go back and read it again. Because like I say, I read it back in the day. And for some reason, I didn't hang on to those issues. I must have traded them to somebody. <laughs> that's the only way I feel like I could have gotten rid of them. But yeah, I think big thumbs up for Shadow of the Bat number one. If you've never read it or it's been a long time, definitely go back and check it out. Funny story. So I was going through my old long boxes because I knew I had this issue. I guess at the time I bought two issues, one that I read and one that I kept sealed in the plastic. And I sent Adam a picture to post on on our Instagram when we dropped this episode because I was like, well, I can't open this thing now because I clearly didn't want to open it then. And I have it sealed in the plastic still. So I had to buy it on Comixology anyway. (laughs) (laughs) The mentality is still there. You can't shake it. All right. Well, as we close out here, it's time to get to one of our favorite segments. What the... Do you have the time to listen to me whine about nothing and everything all at once? I am one of those. And for those who don't know, this is the segment where we basically just get a chance to throw out a random question to each other and have a a quick discussion to learn a little bit more about the other. And so, Michael, I'm just curious for you, as you have had comic books in your life for so long and people have known you for your fandom, is there an embarrassing story from the perspective of somebody like, oh, well, Michael likes this, and you're like, no, no, that's not it, you don't understand, or something of of that nature where you had to either stand up for your comic book fandom or you had to to correct a misconception? So I'll tell you, fortunately, none of my family listen to our podcast because they would not know what we're talking about. (laughs) But my godfather and my aunt, every year at Christmas, they always buy me some sort of Christmas present for 37 years. And for as long as I can remember, every single year, it is some sort of Batman paraphernalia or like this year was a batman pillow the thought is very very nice and it's very very sweet but i'm like i'm 37 years old where am i putting a batman pillow and (laughs) and like i don't want to give it to my daughters because if my aunt and uncle come over they're gonna be like we got that pillow for you and i'd be like yes but i'm not gonna be putting it on my bed at night so that's something i always because everyone always associates me with oh he likes batman buy him batman things I have so many Batman t-shirts from people buying me stuff that I'm like, I don't know what to do with all of them. Like, I, I could wear a Batman t-shirt for the entire year oh. and not run out. So when it comes to defending my fandom, though, oftentimes people think that when you say you read comics, they think of like peanuts in the back of a newspaper or like, you know, Ziggy and that kind of stuff. And what I've usually done in the past when people really doubt me on a comic book, I will go to my stack of books or my bookcase and I'll grab something like Watchmen and I'll be like, here, take this book, read this. 
and come back and tell me what you think about comics afterward. And every single time that this has happened, and it's happened probably about four or five times, they come back and they're like, this is what comics are? And I was like, oh yeah, every time. And they're always blown away. Okay, so I was thinking about this tonight because I, I was hoping we were going to do this and we were going to get to this. I, myself, I've been home now for about seven weeks working from home as well as taking care of my children. And I'm lucky I can find time to go to the bathroom half the day because I'm, I'm either a child is screaming or they want to go out and play or I got to answer emails or calls and whatever. I need to know as as a dad, how on earth are you able to constantly come up with amazing things for your three kids to keep them engaged and entertained and learning things? things while you're also doing all this stuff for the podcast doing stuff for your your youtube shows how do you do it dude i don't like maybe you could tell them for the dads out there that don't know how to make this work and you can figure it out you always blow my mind how do you do it a lot of times i could just throw out like a basic concept you know and i'll be like hey what do you guys think about science and then they'll be like oh i want to do an experiment where we mix marshmallows with soda and then we'll put some leaves in it i was like (laughs) what would that prove i was like um you know then we start discussing well it could be this it could be that like the other day I really wanted to start getting them excited. Like my son, he's really good at math, so he always wants to do math assignments. But writing is a little bit harder for him. So I was like, all right, let's let's work on that. What is like the basic story structure? You know, beginning, middle, and end. Okay, how do you introduce a character? What do people need to know about them? Okay, and then what do you do when you introduce the problem? And then how do you figure out how you resolve it? You know, so we like we made a storybook about our cat going to space in a litter box. So it's kind of tried to walk him through it my son's mind was blown when i said no no it doesn't have to be realistic you can really write anything that's the great thing about your imagination he's like what because he's a very logical kid i'm like no 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 just think of the craziest thing you want to write and we'll do that and so it's not the easiest thing like you say you know it's and they need your attention all the time especially when you have you know like a, an 18 month old my daughter's about to turn five my son is seven like they're all at different stages and they all need something but if you can just almost leave it to them but be ready to build so you're just like okay what about this all right that's good let's let's take it this direction then because it sounds like you're excited about this because otherwise like i try to teach him stuff like today we talked about the state of florida (laughs) (laughs) i was trying to teach them about florida just at random because i thought you know there's there's alligators there there's hurricanes there you know all these different things that they could get excited about and so ultimately yeah like that's what i had to find i was like okay well how do you think they get around when there's water everywhere Everywhere. Fan boats! And I watched a video on fan boats. My son's like, this is awesome! I can't believe it! So you just like kind of build off whatever little thing that's even as ridiculous as it might sound. I'm like, no, this is educational. Yeah, fan boats. If I said, let's talk about Florida to Grace, because she's three and obsessed with Mickey, she'd be like, Mickey's there! Mickey's there! And that's all I hear for about the next four or five days, is just Mickey. (laughs) (laughs) When are we going to Florida, Daddy? Oh, man. We were supposed to go this year, but I don't know if that's going to happen at this point. Well, hey, so speaking of magical places, we hope this podcast is always a source of magic and nostalgia for you. Thanks again for joining us for another episode. And just so you know, we have 
have a new format coming out as we just debuted it uh, with the discussion about Toy Fair 92, but we're calling it our Wizard Half episodes. There are going to be mini episodes, just a little solo discussion from either Michael or myself, something we maybe weren't able to cover from the issue because the magazine is growing past issue 10. It's just getting larger and larger, more and more features, and we only have so much time. So we hope that you'll look forward to those on the off weeks when we're not bringing you the main show, as well as some very fun bonus episodes. We're getting back into the movie game, and we are bringing Stephen Staples, 81, aka Stephen Sapellis, who was with us on issue 9. He and I are diehard fans of the Generation X TV movie from 1996 that played on Fox. Michael is going to join us, and he is going to maybe keep our fandom in check, or maybe he will join the crowd and get excited about this failed TV pilot. My goal is to keep this episode under six hours that's what that's what i'm going (laughs) good luck this will be the most in-depth coverage of that movie you've ever experienced i promise you it'll be the coverage you never thought you needed but always (laughs) and maybe we'll win a couple of you over to our side but until next time keep your books bagged and boarded This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.